0: Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh.
1: Welcome to the Opera Boxcore podcast for Monday, January 25. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Wherever you are, however you're listening, thanks for joining us. Whether it's our live radio show or our studio podcast, we are America's weekly program about opera. And guess what? You get to have your say. Leave us a message on 224-218-9BOX. Again, 224-218-9269. Email us, score at gmail.com. Tweet us at OperaBoxcore. We want you to be part of our conversation. Make that call, send that email, and tweet that tweet. On this podcast, my co-host Oliver Camacho and I talked to Harry Rose, also known as Opera Teen, an opera fan and blogger who writes for the Huffington Post and has 3,500 followers on Twitter. Did I mention he's a teenager? In our Talk Talk segment, we looked at opera productions which literally rewrite the endings of the stories. Does this create more problems than it makes? Plus, we've got this week's opera headlines and our TKO segment returns to pit an American challenger against the reigning queen in a quintessentially British opera, Purcell's Dido and Aeneas. Opera box score is next. And sitting in the studio to my right is Oliver Camacho. Hello
2: there. (laughs) <laughs> I'm across from you this time. I can actually see your face. That's nice. Oh, I like looking deep podcast. into
1: your eyes. Oh, yeah, Not of, as much as I as like looking deep into the eyes of yeah. Giovanna Jacques. Giovanna, what's going on?
3: Hello. I would just like to make fun of Oliver for a second, who just a few minutes ago said, wait, is
1: yesterday today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my <God. laughs> He's confused, but we're not confused at all. Uh, Our first segment for the show today is our Chalk Talk segment where we tackle a problem that's afflicting opera. And uh, we're going to start with the idea of what happens when you literally rewrite the end of an opera. And this came to mind uh, here in Chicago. I read an article about the new Philharmonic, which is in The Burbs uh, by the College Naberville? of the Yeah, represent <laughs> Naperville. Uh, the orchestra is under the direction of Kirk Muspratt, and they are presenting Mozart's Così fan tutte. It just
2: did. It closed yesterday.
1: It's over. Yeah. That's right. It's now officially in the past. It was directed by uh, Jonathan Field, who is, uh, according to his bio, an internationally acclaimed opera director. He was, I will say, one of the pioneers of, like, projections in opera you know he probably developed these things on an early ibm machine or something like that yes. oh really that's one of his claims to fame and he's on the faculty at oberlin as well the reason why this production is i think I- interesting or unusual in that in uh, field's vision of it he has turned to the audience to essentially decide the ending and uh, so, what happened in the performance is that uh, the audiences applaud at the end of the production, and that affects which of the two pairs of lovers who are pop quiz you two. <laughs> Wait, really? Romeo and Juliet and Hansel and Gretel. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No,
2: that's that's and Guglielmo and Dorabella and, and Yeah,
1: exactly. And whichever couple gets more applause, they are decided as the winners or or the the I couple that. I don't
2: know how this happened. We need to call Angelo Devenuto or Aaron Short and. And ask them how they actually did that. Who were in the
3: show, yeah. Because I know that um, this has been done before. Floating Opera Company did it um, a while ago. They've actually done it twice now. And this last one, they did uh, a similar thing where the amount of applause is what decided. Choose your own ending. Yeah, choose your own ending. But then before that, they did one with little beanie babies. So like beanbag hearts. And you threw hearts at the couples you liked the most. So the couples that had the most hearts like beanbag hearts thrown at them were the ones that won or were the one. But how
2: does that affect the production? I mean, like, is that, does that happen before the last?
3: It happens during. So while they're singing that oh, you yeah. throw a beanbag heart at them and they'll pick it up and like put it in a bag that's attached to their But uh, But how
2: does that affect like how the show is finished? Like, you know, is there some, some kind of, you know, conclusion that is reached at the end of the show or is it, does it all happen after the show or I don't, I don't get it. I really don't get it. Do you get it, George? Well,
1: I'm you know having not seen it, of course, okay. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out exactly from it. this <laughs> article, <laughs> yeah. you know, why why this is uh, how this exactly is going to work. For me, it's really a larger question of like what sort of a precedent does it set when we go in and we literally start to rewrite the end of an opera. You know, I I feel like. Lorenzo de Ponte, who's yeah. the librettist for Così Fan Tutte, I mean, he must be turning in his grave. Like He clearly worked very, very hard to create some sort of an ending for this opera. So to have this thing thrown to chance or thrown to its audience, like I, I don't think you would find that amusing at all. And so I think this sort of an approach, it really does uh, belittle the composers and the librettist intentions.
3: So some say that Mozart left the ending open to interpretation. I'm not saying I agree with that, but just to play with devil's advocate. So, I mean, do you think that if, if like an opera is written and kind of has that little coquettish, like, but whatever you, you know, what you'll see, like, you know, what will the woman choose? What will happen?
1: Well, it's, it's do true you, that he, okay. So he left it open to interpretation as like, because each of the men woos the other yeah, right. yeah, 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 yeah. girl that yeah. he's not originally in yeah. love with, I, It seems to me that that there is a way to address that question without turning it over to the audience. As a director, your whole job is to come up with a very strong point of view Mm -hmm. on the text and to put that view into three dimensions. And so by leaving it to audience suggestion or to audience applause, you're basically... Pleading the fifth amendment you're basically taking your foot off the gas and you're saying like i don't really know what happens i'm going to leave it to the audience to decide it's kind of a lazy decision
2: i think that the music is very clear in that it's not they end up with their original lovers i right. think i think and there's you're supposed to find that to be tragic the audience is supposed to realize this is awful you know because ferrando and Pierluigi belong together there's right. so many clues in the score that they belong together Dorabelle and Guglielmo are a little bit more superficial and they could really go either way. But um the music is clearly indicating that, you know, the heroes of this show are Federico and Ferrando and that they deserve to be together. They need to be together. And yet but, they're not. And yet they're not. And they get married to their original spouses, and then like the last chorus, there's something I forget exactly how it goes, but there's something that's like syncopated with this. It's supposed to like the the way it's syllabified is wrong and so mm-hmm. you get the feeling that something is not quite right here, right. you know? But it's supposed to end that way with this kind of big question mark like this is what you know and also the lesson of the enlightenment is to love who you're with you know so we are meant to understand i think that like you know yes if you're going to be um if you're going to embody the enlightenment ideal you have to accept the partner, your partner the way they are.
1: Now, so that to me seems to be a very intelligent response, which is utterly in line with the composer's intentions. Unlike what Field is doing here, which he basically says his point Did you just no shade at Field. His point here <laughs> is that the show is uh becomes like reality TV mm-hmm. where the audience gets to decide the winner.
3: I guess in a way, I'm not really agreeing, but I can definitely see his point. You know, I mean, I think he's trying to break down the barrier. I think he's trying to make it so that the audience can participate, whether or not it's a classy choice, whether or not it's what the composer would have wanted. I think I see where he's going. I think he's really trying to get the audience to feel less
1: passive. Yeah, but I don't think you need like a trick like this to make that happen. Why not just focus on like good, strong characters, really clear relationships and like pay attention to the text, and put it on the stage. Because you know, that's th- harder. This way' much, <laughs> a lot harder. This sort of thing is very prevalent in Germany, where dramaturgs, who are the people in an opera house, who research the production, the composer, the era in which the original opera was set, anything that the director is throwing their way, if they're putting it into a new period of time, then the dramaturg researches all that. And in Germany, the dramaturg also starts... Can hack the thing to pieces and put scenes in different orders. Um, and dramaturgs have started to get a bit of a bad name, I think, in Germany. Uh, dramaturgs also serve the purpose of telling the directors when they have really lousy ideas and mm-hmm. being like, I think you might want to reconsider that. Definitely, this production could have used a dramaturg <laughs> to talk them out of this idea. He makes the point that. Uh, reality TV has become so much a part of our culture; it's now a cultural metaphor because it's accessible for everybody. The fact of the matter is, is that reality TV is actually passé at this point, and there are very few reality TV shows. Yeah, it's on the networks. last
2: season of American Idol. How dare you?
1: That's my point. Is that yeah? It's it's on the way out. Well, we have reality, reality TV. reality. TV. Yeah,
3: I mean, it's all scripted now.
1: Exactly. Um, so essentially, in embodying reality TV, <laughs> he is he is putting the opera form yet again into like last position and proving it to be one more time way behind the curve. So what do you think, Oliver?
3: Are you as opinionated? I mean, I know what you. I know what you're I, saying I about to, the I mean, music uh, being. Clear. I should
2: be excluded from this conversation because Cozy Fantute is my favorite opera. And I think that didn't know that. it should there should be a very clear choice by the by the director. And I actually think that well, I don't want to give away my idea about Cozy Fantuti, because there's still a chance I might direct it one day. But he's on to something with this production, with the idea of reality TV, but letting the audience decide on something they've probably never seen before and haven't don't don't have enough ex- enough experience with to know its nuances. I mean it's sort of broad the libretto but the music is so profound and it's not the type of show that on first viewing you get it you know it is much more complex than that so yeah, so agreed. the the director definitely needs to be making choices to uh, to help the audience understand what's going on
3: i will say i would be interested in seeing it because when i saw the floating opera production i will not speak to how it went musically but i will say <laughs> that um the the concept was was really cool and i was like okay like i can see this it's fun Mozart's probably having a fit in his grave. Um, every like traditional opera goer is probably crying and shooting heroin right now, but I think that like I could see that they're trying to make a change.
0: Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. This just in, the two-minute drill.
1: And it's time for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from the past week in two minutes tops. Having gone bust in 2013, New York City Opera has been reborn after a protracted legal battle and a reorganization plan was approved by a bankruptcy court. The company has now completed a six-performance run of Puccini's Tosca at Lincoln Center's Rose Theater that was dogged by mixed reviews and weather-related cancellations. Maybe we can now all just stop talking about this and move on? Lyric Opera of Chicago has revealed details a dismal financial year. Revenue plummeted 32% for the fiscal year that ended June 30th of 2015, largely because of hits to the company's investment portfolio. The company had a $28 million drop in revenue to $86.7 million last year, and the bulk of the fall-off was due to a $23.5 million decline in investment income. Ticket sales fell 11.6%, donor support dropped 3%, all due to higher fundraising costs, says Lyric. More numbers. The Metropolitan Opera in New York saw dips in revenue and support over the same period as Lyric. Revenue dropped 11.4% to $14 million last year. Donations dipped to $6.3 million over the same period, according to its latest financial report. Even more numbers. On the annual breakdown of recording sales from Nielsen SoundScan, classical music achieved just 1.3% of the market, bumping along the bottom with jazz and children's records. What's more, classical and jazz scored the highest proportion of physical sales versus digital downloads, signifying that the consumer sector belongs to an older generation and is out of step with technology. Lastly, Russian soprano Anna Notrepka was injured in a stage fall earlier this week. Details are sketchy, but she posted a photo of her bandaged left foot on Instagram after the accident. She assures followers that it is not life-threatening. Don't get my hopes up, Anna. And that's the two-minute drill. Ouch. <laughs> Anything of interest there from you guys? Well, I didn't know that you hated Anna to Yeah. Oh, Jesus.
2: <laughs> and I know that it's, she's going to have some plastic surgery and it's just like... A ruse, she's gonna yeah.
3: have plastic surgery.
1: Oh yeah, clearly. You yeah, know, she's yeah. probably didn't even hurt yeah, herself. Like, oh, exactly. She's just like, yeah. Oops, it's like I got my, my foot. Boobs done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look, my foot's all better. Here are yeah, exactly. my two giant boobs. No, her oh, boobs look, are are fine. yeah. Uh, ar- I think oh, she's. Look, my yeah. nose is so thin. It now. might be nose, oh, yeah,
2: or yeah, lipo or something. I don't know. No, she's beautiful. At all, all sizes, she's beautiful. I'm not trying to fat shame her. Body shame her. Okay. T K
1: O. Wait,
2: wait, wait, wait. But then the New York City Opera. I mean, like that is that is not like a, that's not good news that it sucked. You know, I, I, it's not that so much has been going into that. There's so many people really passionate about that company and people who've been like really pulling for it and artists who wanted to live. And, you know, this Roy Niederhofer guy is like complete outsider and just is trying to be a good, you know, patron, you know, entrepreneur. And, uh, he loves music you know and you there was lots of interviews about with him when this thing was happening a year ago and he's just doing it for the love of music he has no real it's not a vanity project for him you know
1: mm-hmm.
2: so um i wanted to do well you know and new york should be able to sustain you know more than one company you know
1: absolutely well new york city opera the whole importance of that company was the repertoire that it was doing was in counterpoint to what the met was doing and the The visual appeal of the productions, the directors they were getting, I mean, it was right up my alley. So when the company closed, I was totally crushed, and that's why I'm always so frustrated about all this back and forth about this company coming and going, the financial side of it, which I don't even begin to understand, and then to have the whole thing happen and then have a huge blizzard – <laughs> so you're ang- you're angry.
2: It's not that you don't care. you're you're in the anger. I know. You're yeah. Not quite really to accept it's, it's bargaining. Then the there's bang- then there's bargaining, and then there's acceptance. Mm-hmm. Right. First it's denial. Right?
1: Anger. Denial. Yeah. yeah. What is yeah. the, the yeah. Yeah.
3: Den- denial? Anger. Bargaining. Yeah. Acceptance. Yeah. 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 Aren't there five stages? There are. Right. And the last one is. Oh no! There's depression. There's. Oh, was depression depression this stage? There's, okay. uh, uh, there's nose
2: picking. Yeah. First you just pick your nose. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, All right. T K O.
1: It's been a while since we've done the. I know I missed it so much. Yeah, I'm glad that we've got it on the podcast this week.
2: So this this week we're gonna do a TKO on the opera Dido and Aeneas,
3: one of my favorite operas. Oh, good.
2: Uh, The only British opera in the standard canon, dating way back to 1689. Uh, While operas were performed in England in the 18th century, the majority of them were composed by Handel and other foreigners until the Brits got tired of the foolishness of the heavily Italian-influenced vocal spectacle and abandoned the idea of opera altogether in favor of oratorio and the so-called ballad operas. England would not get back onto the opera map until the 20th century with the masterpieces of Benjamin Britten. Uh, one of the things that made the Brits hate opera so much was uh, its seeming lack of interest in language and verb similitude. I threw an SAT word in for you.
1: Nice.
2: Uh, that quality which makes works by the likes of Shakespeare so beloved is the language and the proliferation of Italian de capo arias, da capo arias uh, that filled up four hours at the opera house and the uncompromising prima donnas basically killed opera in England. Uh, it is sort of like hollywood and all of its superhero franchises and sequels to blockbuster action movies and all of the inter- interesting stuff moving to television that's sort of what happened in england uh anyway dardanus is a great show because of how rich the language is and the singer who will be successful in the title role will be more in the Kunstdiva diva role than the stim diva mold, mold mold moldy uh okay artistry is favored over technique in an opera like dardanus so george our producer and host. Uh, who have yes you sir. chosen as your Dido?
3: I have who have you stolen, I think, <laughs> is the question. Did I pick your pocket? You <laughs> did. I, we emailed, and he was like, okay, Giovanna, who do you want? And yeah. I said, Janet Baker. <laughs> and, and then George was like, I'll take Janet.
1: <laughs> being, being the dual American-English yeah. yeah. citizen that yeah. I yeah. am, I, oh. would have to, I would have to pick Janet so Baker, fine. of course. Always. I'm fine taking Suzanne. Grant. So that hey! you, Giovanna, with...
2: All right. So let's talk about first singer first. So Dame Janet Baker, her legendary interpretation was documented in an iconic 1961 studio recording under Maestro Anthony Lewis and the English Chamber Orchestra, and it has remained the standard ever since. Giovanna, uh, who do you dare put in the ring against the reigning champion?
3: Queen Graham.
2: Susan Graham, a formidable opponent. Uh, Susan Graham, American, uh, is a specialist in Mozart and Handel trouser rolls. She's also known for her work in New American operas and also for her love of French melody. On paper, these singers would seem very equally matched. Uh, They share a lot of similar repertoire and both have a reputation for highly detailed singing. And they're also known to be really wonderful colleagues. Uh, Graham recorded her Dido in the studio also with the flashy French female conductor Emmanuelle Haim and her chic ensemble Le Concert d'Astre in 2003. All right, let's get to round one.
3: Can I tell you something, first, yes. Oliver? Yes. The first time I ever cried at an opera was during the With Drooping Wings chorus. Oh, that's of such Dido a, gorgeous, a gorgeous chorus. Just so you know. All right,
2: round one. Dido is a very compact opera. Only three acts needed to tell the story, and in just under an hour. The opera moves quickly, and so Dido must establish the conflict and nobility of her character in her opening aria, Ah, Belinda, I am Impressed. In round one, let's hear Dame Janet first. Uh, this is the middle of the aria where Dido confesses to her confidant Belinda that she is languishing for Aeneas, but is too proud to admit it publicly or dare lead Aeneas on. Listen for the long suspended note on the word languish. Who is going to sing that phrase in a way that really captures the feeling of torment? Who shows the anxiety but yet still has the grace? All right, Giovanna, so if you had to referee that round, what would you say about Susan Graham?
3: I would say that she definitely had mm-hmm. the most grace and torment. Um, Dame Baker was like, like, <gasps> you know, like how you get when you're like really mad? And yeah, just, like, you yeah, and yeah, 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 you heard the anger yeah, and, and, I think like Susan, and uh, yeah, like George <laughs> all night. and I think Susan Graham was a little more like actually really depressed. Yeah, what it was it was w- it was kind of emo. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And she really used the color and and she didn't have as much um I don't want to say depth, that's the wrong word. She didn't have as much volume as She Dame was it was very restrained. Yeah, yeah. And so I think I liked that because it was like she didn't want to let herself go. She didn't want to admit how much torment she had, but you could tell she was just brimming with it. Yeah,
2: it was a very shy Dido. What about you, George? What do you want to say about the the champion, Janet Baker?
1: Well, I just thought it was incredible breath control and just these very long lines that were beautifully supported. It's very, you know, solid, sturdy singing
2: sturdy. That's what I have to say about Janet Baker in that, is that she sounded very sturdy. She sounded like a Russian grandmother. You know so, <laughs> so
3: we
1: don't have to worry
3: about yeah. it. So, so Susan I mean, Graham wins. So
2: I have to say, like, I of course I love Janet Baker, but I'm going to give that round to Susan Graham because just the way she was restrained, it, it allowed her to play with pitch a little bit more. It was a bit more expressive in the pitch. And the tighter vibrato gave the sort of cool iciness which actually feels very appropriate mm-hmm. for this first aria. Ding, ding, ding but uh yeah i think that Dame Janet Baker was a little bit too anxious to show show us all what she had mm-hmm. in in the in the box there mm-hmm. anyway let's go to round 2 uh we need like one of those bells like from a uh, box like ding
0: okay
2: round 2 is all about declamation um this is what we would call now recitative, but in this era of opera, uh, it's more about a declamatory style, and it's highly embroidered. Nowadays, with um, psycho recitative, I'm not saying about nowadays, but like let's say a hundred years later in psycho recitative, it really was just about getting text out. But in this uh, early Baroque, uh, the Recitatives were really where all the plot was happening and you have to really be able to turn your tone quality on a dime and there's lots of flourishes that are interpolated in. It's related to the monotic style of Monteverdi. So let's hear uh, some declamation. The language of the librettist Naum Tate um, is rather hard to unpack uh, for those of us who are used to reading 140-character tweets and getting our news from BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. Uh, One really needs to follow along with the libretto to get the gist of it. And only after a few listenings do we begin to understand the poetry. But audience members don't have that luxury, so a great Dido must do everything in her power to support the meaning of these words through text painting and phrasing. Here is a passage from Act 1 in which Dido muses about Aeneas, contrasting his military valor with his physical beauty.
1: And who's singing first?
2: Uh, We'll start with Susan Graham. Okay, great. All right, George, what do you have to say about Janet Baker there?
1: Well, I mean, I still was and that robustness and that sturdy quality and it's you know emotionally it makes a little more sense I think in this part of the show than perhaps previously
2: well I mean it's stuff she's a queen and so she's powerful and she's not she's not a pushover and if you read the Aeneid she did a lot to establish Carthage she wasn't mm-hmm. just like inherited it or something like that uh-huh. so she's definitely a powerful she's Khaleesi you know right uh, what about you Giovanna
3: <laughs> is
1: <laughs> crying in her beard
3: <laughs> I you know what I still stand by Susan, Susan Graham because she, <laughs> <laughs> because she she still had that hopeless tone to her. She still had that like, ah, like and I, I can't was I, do I would this. say it
2: was more it was more feminine for sure. But it was more feminine. But I'm gonna give was, that I'm giving that round. To wait, wait. <laughs> I have one <laughs> last thing to
3: say. In a way, she she won me over by her elegance in doing it. Okay. It no, no. I, so, I buy like, that. I totally buy that. Uh, I
2: I will get the one to Baker because I feel like uh, she has a little bit more variety of palette, you know, like there's more color, a choice of color in her sound. Mm. And that same robustness that we talked about, uh, which was a little bit intrusive in the first aria, now makes her sound like a beast when she's talking about like these battles and these yeah. storms, you know. And I want to hear about a storm Reverend and a battle. George, you know? <laughs> Furthermore, Graham had the benefit of one of the best continuous sections around these days. The Le Concert d'Astre is amazing, mm-hmm. and they would support whatever choice that she made. And if Janet Baker had the same luxury of a continual band that knew what to do, unlike this, this ton of cans tied to the back of a truck we were listening to with the older recording, um, if Baker was singing that role today with that band, uh, it would be awesome. Maybe Um,
3: Graham was just trying to give them a little bit more spotlight, you know? Oh yeah, she wants all the (laughs) glory to the continual section. That's so
2: nice. All right, so Queen Janet wins that round. Uh, Round three. Uh, A little bit of dialogue. So we're going to skip to the third act because Dido is mostly silent in act two. She loses ground a bit to the sorceress, the villain, and she's upstaged by the rhapsodic aria of Belinda and even the song of the so-called second woman. But she comes back in the third act with a vengeance. She finds out that Aeneas is planning on abandoning her right after she gave it up for him. Ugh, men. Uh, We're despicable, (laughs) aren't we? Happened Uh, to me too, girl. (laughs) Happened to me too. (laughs) Aeneas was begging and begging and made promises, but as soon as the deed is done wanderlust or worse, boredom sets in and the sailor sets sail. Uh, Here is some of the dialogue of Diodoninus where she calls him a hypocrite and excuses him in front of the court. Bye, Felicia.
0: And I'll stay, offend the gods, and love obey. No faithless man, thy course pursue.
2: All right, so that time we started with Janet Baker. What do you have to say, George?
1: Well, I could hear every single word. And this is one of my huge problems that I have with opera that's done in English, is that I simply can't understand the text. And on that recording, I got every single word. And then I'm into the opera, and I'm into what's happening, and I can follow the story.
2: I'll say that you're right about that, that Janet Baker, because of the tempo mostly, but also because of her amazing diction, you got every single one of those complicated words. You got them. And she definitely took charge of that recit, of that dialogue. Uh, But Giovanna. Yeah, but
3: did you hear the color? (laughs) The color. She was all over him. You know, it was like. Susan Graham was just like, it, it, I truly felt like she was speaking. It didn't feel like she was singing. It felt like a spoken word. And mm. you could hear the color of, you know, as she's changing kind of registers is how it's really getting into her speaking voice and and just how, how beautiful her overtones were on certain of the held notes.
2: Okay. I will say that th- there's something about rhetoric and the way that that uh, dialogue is written. There are, uh, register changes written into the the dialogue that are meant to highlight you know certain emotions. Like the lower you go, the more guttural it is, mm-hmm. the more like soulful it's supposed to be. And you know, higher is more of an intellectual tone quality, you know. So I hear what you're saying and I think you're you're right about that, that uh Susan Graham definitely sh- you know showed more what's underneath the belly of the car, you mm-hmm. know? And I can whereas, understand everyone. Yeah and still. whereas Janet Baker is, is always wants to sing beautifully, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm and Susan Graham's willing to let the tone go a little bit ugly, and I think it needs to sometimes, you know? But I'm going to call that a tie, because I think that uh, Janet Baker keeps her poise as a queen in that, whereas Susan Graham is, like, again, way more feminine, and it can be played both ways, you know? Yeah. So we're in the deciding round now. It's so exciting. (laughs) Finally, we have the most famous passage from the most famous aria of this opera. Uh, If you've heard anything about this opera, you've heard this line. Dido is single again. And she takes her revenge by dying, of course. (laughs) Uh, In the original source material... She's not
3: dramatic, which is good.
2: (laughs) No, not at all. In the original source material, the Aeneid, uh, Dido collects all of Aeneas' possessions and gifts and probably his leftover underwear and a stick of deodorant he left in the bathroom, and she makes a big bonfire out of it. And then she climbs on top of the fire, and it becomes her funeral pyre. That would be way mortifying for a 17th century audience. So in Purcell's opera, instead, we have Dido... Just dying of heartbreak. So uh, the last words of Dido are remember me, but forget my fate. And like in her first aria, these words are sung over a ground bass or a passacaglia, which is a musical device in which the accompaniment in the bass line repeats itself over and over again and indicates that we are near the end of the story. It's hmm. the sound of time marching. It's the sound of destiny. How clever of Purcell to hint at the beginning of the show by using ground bass that her interest in Aeneas was going to lead to the end of her story. So let's see, who dies better, Susan Graham or Janet Baker, and how will they phrase these last memorable words, which are repeated seven times? And who's going first? Uh, This time we'll start with uh, Susan Graham.
3: I'll right. take my trophy whenever you're ready, Oliver. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what do you got to say about that, Giovanna?
3: I have to say, she was, Dame Baker was by no means close to dying. <laughs> that woman had a good 20 years ahead of her. Susan Graham, she had about five minutes left and I could hear it and I know you didn't like the the, the fact that you could hear the release of yeah. the notes but I thought that added so, so much So Giovanna's talking
2: about in the first Remember Me you hear a little <laughs> come out and that's something that can either be part of the technique.
3: She did it twice, so I think she meant yeah. to do it.
2: Or it's it's a choice that to let the audience hear the release so it almost sounds like air escaping, you know, after you've sung the note. So, we make those choices mostly when we're singing much later music, not so much when we're singing baroque music, but I'll I'll take it. Um, I'll say this before we let George jump in here that <laughs> You know, we uh, are, whatever, 50 years uh, ahead of what Janet Baker was doing in terms of style and interpretation, and much more scholarship has been done. And so Susan Graham, working with the really, you know, chic Le Concert d'Astre, is doing a lot of the new version of articulation and ornamentation, which we accept now as part of the repertoire. And Janet Baker had, did not know any of that. I mean, she would, they were just beginning to discover those things. But Janet Baker had no, nothing to help her the way Susan Graham mm-hmm. did in there. So but go on, George.
1: Well, Giovanna makes a really good point. I Mm. I will say for for Janet Baker's that you're hearing there in that final excerpt a totally different sort of tonal quality, sound quality, Mm. uh, which is so much more human and pathetic, meaning full of of pathos, you know, Mm. pitiable almost. Uh, And I think she kind of saved that for the end of the show, which is exactly where it needs to happen in that character's arc.
2: I think i 'm going to call it for Janet Baker, and the reason why the reason why I was very close and i I love susan graham 's style there I loved her trill most yeah, especially, whatever. but this is the queen dying let 's remember this is a character like a big character, and this is a big deal that this is happening. And she's not going to fade away like some, you know, Zoe Deschanel character. She's going to, or Melisande, I should say, Mm -hmm. you know, she is a queen and she, everybody knows she's dying. (laughs) Remember me, bitches. (laughs) So I will give it to Jen. I will say that she did uh, reveal a little bit more vulnerability in her first Remember Me, but then in the r- repeat on the second G, she decided, I'm just going to sing this loud because everybody else sings it soft. I'm going to do the opposite. And I liked that choice. So anyway, right. just by a hair, Janet Baker keeps her title. TKL. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: I appreciate you setting it up for us and, and uh, letting us go head to head, Giovanna and I. But to be continued on another episode, to be sure.
0: You're listening to Opera Box Score. With George Cedarquist, Oliver Camacho, and Giovanna Jacques. Let's go Inside the Huddle.
1: Our guest on the show uh, is Harry Rose, also known as Operatine, And uh, Oliver and I interviewed him prior to to the podcast that you're listening to now. Uh, we met at the Chicago Public Library in a slightly echoey room, so apologies in advance for that. You can hear the audio just fine, but if you need to tweak your levels however you're mm. listening, feel free to do that. Tweaking it. What sort of introduction do we need to give Harry other than to say, I don't know anyone like him?
2: Yeah, I mean, when he started uh, blogging, he was probably like 13 years old, and he now knows more about the history of opera and the players uh, these days, the administrators and the singers, than most professional opera uh, opera professionals that I know, especially singers, you know? And uh, he's definitely got a bright future ahead of him. He wants to be an administrator, and I would totally see him in that role. Uh, so maybe he's our future general director of like Lyric Opera Chicago or something
1: and like that. We do talk a, about that yeah. in the interview somewhat. Yeah. Uh he's extremely articulate. He's quite well known. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in Chicago because he was applying for colleges, right? Yeah. We like, hope he was on a college we, tour we, and we nabbed him we,
2: <laughs> we hope that school that looks like Hogwarts, uh, gets their act together and, and invites him to come down. So
4: I went first to the Met when I was eleven. We saw Cavalleria Rusticana and Pagliacci and then from that point, I was going like once a year. I saw La Traviata with Angela Jorgue. Mm. I saw what I saw. I saw Fanchula Del West one year The Debbie Void. The Debbie Void. Oh wow. Um. And that was fun. Yeah. But then you know, I start. I realized that this was something that I wanted to write about. This was something that I was learning a lot about, and just sort of, you know, by nature, I'm I'm like a intense person, mm. so I. I kind of dove in with it, and I was, you know, buying all these books and reading through them, books that, you know, really you're supposed to read, like, one chapter at a time. And, yeah. like, my summer reading was, like, that big blue ticket to, to the opera book. Okay. Who wrote that?
2: Or was it about?
4: It's just, it's, like, literally they just list operas, and then they're, like, here are two recordings you should listen to okay. here. You know, you okay it's like give. a survey of opera. Whole, like, yeah, yeah, no, okay. but they're you know, they're giving it's actually very tongue in cheek, it's pretty funny. Okay.
2: huh
1: So you were really approaching it from all different angles. You were seeing productions, you were reading books, and you were listening to recordings, and obviously it was of interest to you, mm-hmm. right? It it wasn't something that did not relate to your life, it wasn't something that was terribly boring, it was more exciting than, I don't know, T V.
2: But then you started a blog.
4: Then I started to blog. Yeah. I started to blog an anonymous made, blog, anonymous blog, yeah. and I bounced around platforms for a little while. And now I'm on WordPress. I started on Blogger and then went to Tumblr. Now, now, then I moved to WordPress. But I started just initially, kind of. I think the first thing I wrote about was like they had a Placido Domingo documentary okay. on PBS, and I was like, "There's too much singing in this." <laughs> <laughs> I have since one of the quotes from my college essay I went through and read all of my old mm-hmm. blog posts to try to find material that I could you know put in the essay to demonstrate my growth and I one thing I was like it was when the, the last time the Met did on Belena and I was like Henry Eighth is a thoughtless person thus he has no thoughts or something it was like that type of thing that type of
2: very very basic okay. attempts at understanding. Yeah. But now you are, you actually probably understand opera just as, as well as anybody I know. Oh. And no, I mean like I, I read your criticism and I read like your season previews and stuff like that and what you're excited about uh, in the the season of The Met at the very least, but also, you know, your kind of global understanding of the opera scene and it's like, it's so fascinating to me that like you are that in tune with it and I, I it sounds like, at least when you're being prolific in your, uh, in your blog posting, that all you do is follow, you know, what the Met is doing, what specific specific singers are doing, like, Medici TV, like, all these things that we all want to, like, spend time But It sounds like you're, like, devoting hours and hours to these things. And uh, I just don't understand how you were able to do that. Well, tell us it's not true. Yeah. (laughs) No, definitely not. Definitely not. And be a full-time student at the same time, you know, so.
4: No, it's been a lot of, you know, sort of catch-as-catch-can. What I've done, tried to do a lot is, you know, incorporate opera into my academic interests you know you're writing an essay about the scarlet letter and she is you know ostracized from the community for you know her promiscuity and then I wrote an essay tying that into La Traviata it was sort of you know attempting to bridge the two gaps and supplementing that with
0: reading and recording and performances at the same time
2: are the audience that we're trying to build because you are the future opera goer you know and I'm just curious to know like what things you think work you know what initiatives do you feel like that totally speaks to me what things in productions uh, are really appealing to you what type of stage direction what type of singers what type of publicity gets your attention you know uh, because we all want to know that so we can continue to do those things, you know? And do you feel like you relate to the so-called young audience? I'm using air quotes. Do you relate to them, or do you feel like you're more part of, like, the old regime audience, you know? Because um, you are sort of an old soul, you know? Um.
4: Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely feel like I sort of stand in between that very, very innovative under- 40 opera crowd and really then, under 40 yeah. <laughs> and then the you know much more experienced opera aficionados that
2: yeah that, it's, stand it's so strange the i don't have, like compliment here but like it's you are a combination of being so young and like you know open but also you're not a neophyte you know
4: yeah i mean part of what was important for me while initially blogging and writing was that i wanted to you know as i was doing that i was learning as much as i possibly could and it that synthesis of everything that i was learning i you know was i think more interesting to adults and established sort of members of the opera community maybe not you know not what they could learn from me necessarily but what they could sort of see you know size me up so to speak you know this is what this is what's going on in his head this is what he's processing So I never, my, you know, my readership was never teenagers. That's, you know, in retrospect, I've just sort of started thinking about that. It's really been mostly a blog for adults that are interested. And in that way, I think it sort of is very much a reflection of how much
2: I've learned as a part of this and, you know, participating in it and watching it all happen. So to get to that question, it's a huge one. Like, what are some of the things that have worked that you've you know, felt were specifically aimed towards new audiences? And what are some of the things that maybe fall flat? You don't have to name names, you know? Yeah. But, you know, um, like for, we always talk about an opera now podcast, how like the Three Little Pigs opera that comes into the elementary oh, school. <laughs> I dread those things yeah. so much. And I don't know if you've read, witnessed one of those, you know, in school performances. I've been fortunate to, to not <laughs> Okay. the Three
4: Little Pigs, yeah. the opera. Um. You know, keep in mind also, I And is anybody who's been a benef is someone who's been a beneficiary of these things? It's all been through sort of you know press and blogging. It's not, you know, I I have never been, I have never gone to the opera because the opera was looking for young people and I saw it on the side of a bus and I thought, oh my god, I get to go see the Barber of Seville in English for half price. Hmm. That was never my angle, you know, it was always sort of looking at it more subjectively, or more yeah, objectively, gosh, I can't think of the word, but, um, well, first of all, I think you need to get people there, and don't make me pay for it, don't, I mean, it's not, you know, I think, op- people think opera is expensive, and there are parts of it that are, but if you can get somebody in the house, maybe even for that first time, and don't, you know, low commitment, we don't want to, you know, the same way that anything works we don't want to come on too strong and we don't want to seem desperate we want to I think what opera has to offer is history and language and music and stagecraft and if you have any interest in any of those things then an opera house is a, could be a really significant place for you but then let's cast a wide net and bring in some of those people that have any of those sort of disparate interests.
1: What what's opera missing right now, in your opinion? Now, if we were to cast the net a little bit wider, and, and what do we, what do we still need? You know, what is, what's like the most important thing that we're still searching for that's going to help take this art form, which has been around for four hundred years, uh, and it's going to let it you know exist for another four hundred. I think, you know,
4: there's like that Franco Zeffirelli quote where like opera is when the muses hold hands and dance. Like, Shut up. <laughs> I think opera is a composite medium. And, you know, as I said before, it's language, it's history, it's music, it's stagecraft. And I think if we are appealing to, you know, every person that's in their high school theater show and we think, we say, hey, you know, there's some really cool music happening at the Met or the Lyric or at LA Opera or wherever it is, that, you know, is comparable to what you're doing now. And in fact, you're... Songs, your sort of structure from Hairspray can really be traced all the way back to 17th century Florence. That's pretty cool. Maybe some aspect of what we do in Lincoln Center or at the Civic Opera House might be interesting and relevant to what you're doing in your high school
1: auditorium. Yep. I'm. You know, we're going to take a short break here, actually. Okay. Um, and we're going to be right back with Opera Team, also known as... Harry Rose, stick around on Opera Box Score. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score, America's talk radio show about opera. Now I hear you saying opera ain't your thing, but get this. We tackle everything about opera and body slam it into a sports radio setup. The result? 60 minutes of in-depth analysis, outrageous opinions, and good, clean fun. You might even learn something. Opera class, sports radio crass. Join us for Opera Box Score Monday nights at 9 on WNUR. We're back with Harry Rose, a.k.a. Opera Teen. Harry, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. It's great to have you here in snowy, cold Chicago. Beautiful Chicago. (laughs) Um, I want to move the conversation forward, not just about your past, a little bit about the present, but even onto the future as well. The one thing that I read about you was your comment that one day you would love to be running an opera company, maybe the Metropolitan Opera, but something in arts administration. Mm-hmm. That is like the least sexy thing out there in <laughs> opera land. Yeah, I want to do that. So, okay, well, there's two of you then, gentlemen. Um, but why? What is attractive about that?
4: Um, i It's sort of come to me, you know, I have absolutely no musical talent. Absolutely none. I played the trumpet for five years, and it was a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> I am not a musician. I'm not... You know, I'm not a super creative person in the design aspect, so I know that, you know, I wouldn't do well as a set designer or costume designer, but I have sort of, you know, through just sort of learning about it and working about it, I've discovered that I have this sort of interest and, you know, moderate to minimal skill in raising money and working with people on a more direct level. You know, I've been... You know, my mom works in not-for-profits. I've been; it's always sort of been part of the vernacular. It's something that's been interesting to me, and it's been something that I've been able to do well. I worked with Opera Rocks Presents, which was sort of a startup opera company in New York, and I managed their, you know, ticket sales and their marketing and their press. And you know, we got bloggers to come, we got reviews of the show, and it was, you know, when when we were able to sort of set up ticketing online we were getting people to come and they were paying to see what we had done and you know I was also pressing the subtitle button so I was getting this sort of very well-rounded experience and I thought I I can do this I'm interested in this and I you know have some ability for this and I think this this would be what I can do in the community to bring about the most sort of innovation and change.
1: The other thing that you have a real command of is obviously singers, their names, their talents, their careers, their repertoire. And I mean, that to me, I don't know what you think, Oliver, is like a key component of being a general director.
2: Or an artist manager, actually, like knowing the history of the medium and, you know, understanding people's (laughs) talents and where they might best fit. Uh, That is something that even people who study singing professionally um, haven't, don't usually get around to. I mean, like I work with so many singers who, you know, are just so focused on their own instruments uh, and developing their own careers that they haven't really paid attention to what came before them or what's happening around them. And that might be because it does take so much time to develop your instrument, and since you are not developing an instrument, you have that time yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to listen and to research and to study. You know, so uh, yeah, that that might be a potential track for you. But I mean, how many people do you know, like that are young, you know, college-bound students that say, "Oh, I'm going to become like the general director of an opera company." I mean, I think that's that's great. Like, we need people just as much as we need people studying voice, people writing music, people learning how to make the costumes, you know? Yeah,
4: yeah. There's, you know, different colleges that I've been looking at and some of them actually offer undergraduate arts administration degrees, which is very unique. And, you know, I saw at one place they had a PowerPoint and they had, you know, it had been five years or so, the program, and they'd already placed 80 people at all of these, you know, various arts institutions. And so there's... There's, I mean it's it's definitely not just me it's definitely not just me
1: we're recording the podcast at the end of January what Harry is is on your list for the rest of this uh, season and then into the summer that's particularly exciting for um you to see
4: I or do because you might be working this summer right yeah fingers crossed yeah <laughs> um. I am looking forward to Pearl Fishers at the Met. I've heard some really, really positive things about it. I'm yet to see it live for myself, but, you know, that's definitely up there. I am really looking forward. The Met is doing, in May, Abduction from the Seraglio, and it's not an opera that I know well at all. And I think they've, you know, Albina Shaggy Muratova, who I enjoyed when she did Lucia and... Paul Appleby, is that who? Yeah, it is? He's so cute. I mean, such a good singer. <laughs> <laughs> and he was—he did *Rake's Progress*, and it was fantastic. Yeah, he, i think he stole the show. Yeah. actually. him yeah. and Stephanie Blythe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm looking forward to that sort of learning about that opera. I think the Met likes to do like sort of like one, you know, yeah, two or a, three. It's sort of a chamber
2: opera to be in such a large space at the Met. And if you want a little preview of. Uh, Abduction, you might listen to Oliver's Corner on it. <laughs> I think I did three. I just downloaded. Okay. I, just, okay. I just Oh,
4: is that the back episode? Yeah, there's a back oh, episode. Okay. I'll, I'll send you the link. So I just downloaded the new ones. <laughs> um, I'm looking forward to that. I know the Caramore Festival is just announced they're doing Aureliano and Palmira, which is very typical of the music they like to do. It's like, you know, underperformed Rossini and Fidelio with Elsa Vanden and Paul Groves. Oh, wow.
2: So that should be that should be interesting. And do you think maybe you'll be working at Caramore this summer? Um,
4: potentially. I have to okay. figure out where I'm going to be in the fall before I figure out where I'm going to be in the summer. Yeah.
2: Well, hopefully in Chicago. Hopefully at a very beautiful school that looks like Hogwarts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Harry, where can our listeners find your work right now? What's uh, the best way to do that?
4: Uh, if you Google Teen, you will get my... Huffington Post page, which is where most of my blog posts go to live. You can find them on both platforms. Oproteen.wordpress.com is my main blog. I'm on Twitter
2: at Oproteen. Everything is Oproteen. <laughs> Nobody had taken that username yet. And read more about your history on Christian Science Monitor. That article is still easy to find. Yeah, right? that article is still easy to
4: find. It's from
2: 2013 or 2012 yeah. or so. It's There's a... The, the journalism the stalwart journalism of the christian science yes i I don't ever read that thing but i've read that (laughs) issue so Uh, and then there's your interview with peter gell which is on your own yeah that was
4: back in oh god that was like four years ago Mm -hmm. that's way back were you even a teenager then
1: i think i was 13. okay yeah (laughs) you were opera tween (laughs) (laughs) that was way
4: that's way back there Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah Harry, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank on you the for broadcast. having me. It's been Appreciate awesome. It. Stick around everybody. Our last segment of our show is called Good Call Bad Call is coming up next.
0: Good Call Bad Call on Opera Box Score.
1: Good Call Bad Call is our final segment. Oliver, take it away.
2: I'm going to do a good call this time uh, because Chicago Opera Theater is in rehearsal for a double bill of La Bohème. Humaine. And did I say that correctly? Mm-hmm.
3: You did. Good and job. And
2: thank you. And Johnny Skiki. <laughs> Uh, there's nobody Italian to correct that. Uh, but I'm uh, really happy. My name ain't <laughs> Javala for <none. laughs> I, I'm really happy that they're bringing back Emily Beersant to sing the role of Lauretta in Gianni's Kiki, that famous aria that everybody knows. Oh mio babino, Caro. That's going to be her aria. And she really impressed me in her um, The Clever One, which was a couple years ago, a Shostakovich opera. I think Shostakovich, that's what it is, yeah. Is oh it no, Orf. Orf, sorry. Yeah. Orf. She was great in that, God, who's the expert here. Uh, and I'm really looking forward to them using her again because she is a, you know, Midwestern native and we should be promoting our local artists. Mm-hmm. She did the Ryan Center, et cetera. So that's my good call.
1: Fantastic. Giovanna. My
3: good call is that this coming Sunday, if you are in Chicago, there is a wonderful, wonderful festival called the Schubertia that the yes. Pianoforte Foundation puts on every single year. It is free. It has amazing music. It's a pretty much just you know a, a replica of what Schubert used to do it's in his Schubert- day It's Schubert's Palooza
2: Schubert Yeah pretty much it's Schubert- a festival of
3: just Schubert <laughs> and it's all in Pianoforte and and they do a beautiful job and it's I really recommend going I will be there I'm sure Oliver will be there I'm going to
0: be singing in that so Okay yeah. well there you go
3: <laughs> We'll see you there
1: Yay my good call for the week is there's an article in the Wall Street Journal about the Chicago Bulls basketball team and two of their stars, Pau Gazal and Nikola Mirotic, who are both... Pau is a
2: seven-foot-tall guy,
1: right? Yes. Yeah. So gorgeous. Opera fans. He is both pretty good-looking. Yeah. They go to Lyric Office of Chicago, I don't usually like go White to Men, the but Chicago he's Symphony. Yes. And there's this whole article in the journal. We'll put it on our... Uh, website so that you can take a look at it about why they think classical music Let's get them easy. in the
3: interview. I've <laughs> tweeted I've tweeted at them and yeah. I've challenged them to yeah. come on our show. I'm waiting Needless for them to, to say, love me.
1: They're both European, which is yeah. I think why they have that sort of sensibility That's and interest in mm. opera.
2: They grow them that big in Europe, huh?
1: That's it for our (laughs) podcast. Our in-show announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S dot com. The general manager of WNUR is Maddie Higgins. Our program director is Bill Scholney, And our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. However you listen to our podcast, please let us know what you think. Be sure to leave comments, reviews, and those beautiful little stars. Good or bad, we and others want to hear about it. You can also contact us via email, Twitter, and Facebook, operaboxscoregmail.com, at operaboxscore on Twitter, and operaboxscore. We're back live in studio on Monday, February 1st at 9 p.m. Central on WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago and wnur.org slash popup. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to keep the conversation about opera going with the stranger that you meet on the train, Giovanna. What's your prediction for the coming week? You're going to meet a stranger in the train and, and you're going to tell about opera. I.
3: <laughs> I predict that Nabucco is going to sell out completely.